Welcome back. This is the fourth and last in a series of interviews that I've decided to do for my Feet Dirty task number two. Um, the theme of these interviews has been celebrating environmentalists of the BVI. What do we need to do? And the purpose has been to speak to local environmentalists about their work, find out the progress that they've been able to make in their fields, and the progress that they feel is still yet to be done. In this interview, I got to speak with Angela Burnett, who is basically the pioneer of climate change legislation in the BVI. She has worked with the government's unit of the environment and climate change for several years as the climate change officer, but currently she's working as the climate change coordinator on a series of projects going on in the island of St. Lucia. Um, we will be able to learn a lot from her about climate change legislation and really just the ins and outs of doing environmental work in the BVI and in the Caribbean. So I hope that you'll enjoy this interview. And without further ado, here is Angela Burnett. So what is your current role in the environmental field in the BVI and I guess the wider Caribbean now? And what are your day-to-day -day duties in this role? Okay, thanks. So I still currently hold the position of climate change officer with government of the Virgin Islands, but I've mm -hmm. taken a, a leave of absence from that position um, to, to do the work that I'm currently doing in, in St. Lucia, which is serving as the climate change coordinator for a project called the Disaster Vulnerability Reduction Project, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, essentially is very much in line with the work that I was doing in BVA, just in a, a specific, the context of a specific project and on a much larger scale in some ways. Uh, so I would perhaps define my, my work in the environmental space as more so being in the realm of um, climate change policy and adaptation mm -hmm. in particular. Um, and uh, that has also involved a, a large degree of uh, public awareness in that space. And the interesting thing I think about climate change work is that it's very cross-cutting. Um, People, I think, have traditionally perceived climate change as an environmental issue, but I think it's much broader than that. It's a developmental issue and challenge. So what it means is that when you work in the climate change field, yes, there's a, a lot of aspects that touch the environment, but there are other aspects to it as well. You, you think about disaster management, you think about physical planning, um, you think about economic growth and development, you think about tourism. So it's one of those fields that um, is very cross-cutting and interdisciplinary in nature. Um, so I, I, in BVI context, I did a lot of planning work and from the questions you have, I know that you're interested in some of that work. I did a lot of um, assessment type work, just kind of trying to lay the foundation for, for climate change work in BVI. My current role is more so, like I said, project oriented. So I coordinate a portfolio um, in, in all our portfolios, over 120 projects and a very diverse portfolio focused on, um, specifically focused on helping St. Lucia become more resilient to climate change impacts. Some of those projects are sort of um, hard engineering type projects where they're you know, doing things like strengthening infrastructure and facilities. Um, and a lot of the portfolios um, focused on enhancing data 
for better planning, which is a lot of the work that I'm engaged in. So I don't want to get too much into the project because that's a conversation on its own. Mm -hmm. um, but that's essentially um, what I do. I think at the end of the day, I see my work as how do we really achieve the goal of sustainable development? You know, how do we balance the need to, yes, have a strong economy and have economic growth, have people be able to meet their basic, you know, need for living and, and earning and having a, a certain quality of life from an economic perspective, how do we balance that with social development and, and growth and, and social change, as well as the third important element, which I think is too often forgotten in the, which I think, you know, there's this triangle, right? And without all of these three, you can't have a healthy society and you can't have a sustainable society. So that third leg, of course, is the environment, right? Like, how do we balance those things? Um, without compromising the environment. And I think that it, it's possible. And I think the more we society advances, the more technology advances, the more we learn about, um, you know, new methods for, for building and designing and engineering. It becomes more and more possible. It's just a matter of us having the will, I think, to do it. So I, if I have to describe my work, um, whether I'm doing something, you know, climate change directed, or my work has also involved some very environmental specific mm -hmm type um, work. I think you no. Know, whatever I'm working in at the time, um, I've also served in the planning department for some time doing very planning specific work. I always see myself as working towards the goal of achieving sustainable development for BVA and for the wider Caribbean. I have to warn you that I talk a lot, so I'm going to try to stop there <laughs> and we can go to the next question unless you have, <laughs> unless you have, you know, any questions coming out of that response. No, I feel like that was a pretty thorough, the most thorough answer I've gotten to that question so far. So, <laughs> I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So how, when and why did you get involved in this field of work? Right. Oh, well, if, if we think about the question from this perspective of when I landed my first job in the environmental <laughs> field, it would have been following my um, completion of my bachelor's degree. So that was back in... 2000 and goodness, let me not get my dates wrong. 2007, I think I graduated with my bachelor's degree. Um, prior to that, I had done a very brief summer internship at the Conservation and Fisheries Department. I think I was responsible for organizing the library or something very, <laughs> very interesting um, like that. It was actually interesting. I'm not saying that sarcastically. <laughs> um, lots of interesting, I think, forgotten, um, very interesting reports and so forth. But my real first job in the environmental field was actually with an NGO um, called the Ocean Project, uh, based in Rhode Island in the US, uh, but doing work internationally. And this, I think that was a really good start for me because it gives me, before coming back to BVA, it gave me the opportunity to have some kind of exposure outside of our shores and to mm -hmm. see things, you know, in a, in a wider context. And I think, you know, having worked in BVA government for a long time, it was good to get the perspective of another sector, right? The nonprofit sector. So I, I, that was an opportunity I had straight out of university um, through a program that they do in the US, which allows you to essentially stay as an international student and work for a year as long as it's in your area of study. So I did that um, for a year uh, and then came back and basically went into BVI government and had a career there for it's been 11 years or so now before I decided, you know, it was the time in my career where I felt like if I wanted to continue to grow as a professional and, 
you know, enhance my own skills and continue to build my capacity, it was time to branch out a little bit and do something at the regional level, mm -hmm. um, which is what I'm currently doing with the view towards then going back to BBA and applying all that I've learned here to, to you know, continue to push the agenda in BBA. Okay, okay. So that's how I got involved. Um, but the interest in the environment, and I think, I mean, maybe I don't know what how your interview went with the others, but I'm sure if this question was specifically asked, <laughs> um, the interest that I have in the environment started when I was a little child. And I think that is true for most people who find themselves working in the environmental field. It's not, it's not a love that comes overnight. You know, it's not something that you sit down and for economic uh, reasons decide I'm going to go into the environmental field because I'm going to make tons of money. I think it's one of those things where you had some experience as a child that allowed you to have a connection with the environment and uh, that allowed you to appreciate the importance of the environment. And I certainly had, I think, the, the blessing and opportunity to have many, many, you know, m memories and fond experiences being out in the environment as a child, like wading through salt ponds, spending every weekend at the beach, going hiking, you know, just a lot of things out in nature and really developing that bond. So I would say without knowing it, you know, right. <laughs> that, that's where my, that's how my career started in the environment from having those childhood experiences. Okay. So to my knowledge, the climate change policy in the BVI was kind of like non-existent before the work that you did with the um, the green paper and the climate change adaptation paper and other things. So right. first of all, thanks for putting those things on because it was really disheartening to not see those things being considered for so long. But yeah. also, could you give us an idea of what those key documents were about and how they were significant to the BBI? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, it's good, good to know that people appreciate the work. <laughs> I think it's been about close to maybe 10 years ago now, if it's yeah. not too long. Yeah, it's coming up on that. Um, well, I, I think it was just good coincidence, really, that at the same time that I was coming home from university, from doing my year um, in the U.S. and coming mm -hmm. back to government, it, 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 it almost aligned perfectly when BVI was, for the first time, we had the opportunity to become involved in a regional project that was looking at climate change. So I don't know if this come up, has come up in one of your other conversations, but one of, the, one of the things that makes the environmental field challenging in the BVI is, is lack of funding opportunity. Mm -hmm. And because we're an overseas territory of the UK, we don't have access to a lot of the funding opportunities that independent islands in the Caribbean do. Um, mm. Those funds are just not available to us, they're not accessible to us. And what you found is that the rest of the Caribbean um, for, they had like a, about a 15 to 20 year lead on us in terms of addressing climate change. And that's because there were international funds that they were able to access. And so there were regional projects that were set up through the Caribbean Climate Change Community Center for the most part. Um, and we were not able to access those funds. We were not able to benefit from those projects. But finally, and I think it started in 2007, so it was kind of getting going right before I, I came in in 2008. Finally, the, the climate change, Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, FICES for sure, they were able to negotiate some funding for BVI and the other overseas territories to, for the mm -hmm. first time, actually look at the matter of climate change. 
and I, to my knowledge at least before that, um, really if you mention climate change in the BVI, people might probably <laughs> have heard the term before, but there was certainly nothing happening at, at the level of you know, a, a wide-based conversation right. at the public level, um, I think even at the technical level and certainly not at the political level. Like you said, there were not policies in place. There weren't institutional frameworks. Um, when I say that, I mean things like, you know, having staff in place, having committees in place. There were not institutional frameworks to look at climate change in any sort of um, serious way. Mm -hmm. So there was really nothing in place. And I, I, I try to explain why that void was, right? Um, and so I kind of came in at that. I found myself like in the right place at the right time, right? To um, be the one to, to do the work. It actually started out in a very interesting way. I, I remember the, the same Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, they reached out to us wanting us to organize a workshop um, for as a part of the project that they were running. And I think it was one of those things where nobody wanted the additional work. And I was young, just like you, fresh from school. I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and literally just one thing led to, the, led to the other. I organized the workshop, then I became the one to follow on from the workshop. And before you knew it, I was coordinating BVI's implementation of that regional project. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity for me. And it was through that project that we actually laid all of the foundations. So that project in involved the establishment of our National Climate Change Committee, which has become the institutional structure through which we make sure that government on a long-term basis is thinking about and responding to climate change and trying to mainstream climate change adaptation within its day-to-day -day work, right? So through that project, we established the Climate Change Committee. We also developed the Climate Change Adaptation Policy, and I'll explain the process that we went through in a moment. Mm -hmm. We also conducted a vulnerability and capacity assessment, which was the first time anybody was really trying to um, not just qualify, but as much as possible quantify the climate change and fully describe the climate change impacts that would be experienced and that were already being experienced in VVA, right? Because without understanding what the issues are, you can't write policy to respond to it. So we did the vulnerability and capacity assessment. We also did some work under that project to try to um, improve data, uh, um, not at, in the immediate sense, but put systems in place so that we could have better data over the long term, weather data, beach monitoring data, et cetera, so we can appreciate how the impacts are um, changing over time. And, and then the other major part of that project was public awareness. So we had a massive public awareness campaign. And I think one of the, the things I feel proud about and I feel like was a real accomplishment under that project is that now, when you mention the word climate change in BVI, people know what you're talking about, right? right? There's even a, con I would say that people have conversations now about climate change. Certainly, there was a period in time, and I think it still happens, where in every major political speech, there's mention of climate change, you know? So whereas I think, like, you know, immediately before we did that project, there was no conversation happening at the public, technical, or political level. I think after that project, so in the span of like a four to five year period, you had from no conversation to conversation happening. Mm -hmm. And at, especially at the political level, politicians not making a major speech without mentioning climate change. So I think that's significant. Now it might take some time for talk to translate into action, <laughs> but unless you start with the conversation, right, then you're never going to get to the action. So coming back to the policy, sorry, I'm a bit long winded. Um, 
I have to say that it, it wasn't, in, you know, it wasn't my work on my own. Um, there was a lot of guidance. Thankfully, that was provided through the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center because they had now done this work in a lot of the islands before. So we were sort of now following a model that had been, I guess, tried and tested in other islands, right? So we had templates. When I say templates, like, you know, structures to follow. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, the work involved a lot of research. So right. a lot of literature review, and you would know all about that, having gone through <laughs> your studies. So a lot of literature review, a lot of interviewing local experts, right? Like what you're doing now to get first-hand information, because a lot of a lot of knowledge is not necessarily documented, right? As you appreciate in our context, a lot of it is just in people's memory and experience. So there was a lot of that gathering knowledge and documenting it from experts. And there was a lot of consultation, um, public consultation. I remember we went through, I think, a three-year period where we consulted about a group of 100 stakeholders several times over the course of like three years. And we went through a process starting with what we call an issues paper, where that was the first step in the process to get to a policy. So the issues paper was just agree identifying and agreeing on what are the issues meaning like what are the impacts that we're looking at and what are the priorities so we had to try there's a laundry list of impacts so what do we consider most important right and then what are some potential solutions or ways that we can address these issues so that was an issues paper we would have had a consultation with stakeholders to derive the set of issues that became the issues paper we would have gone back to the stakeholders to vet what we have had drafted, taken their input, revised the paper accordingly, and then coming out of the issues paper and the feedback, we then went to the next step, which was generating the green paper. So the green paper is sort of the, prelim the preliminary um, step to having a policy. So in the green paper, you sort of set out, okay, here is the, here is the background, here, is, here are the issues, here are how we propose that we can respond to these issues, right? And it provides, um, you know, quite a bit of detail. The Green People provides quite a, a bit of detail on the climate change impacts, right? right? So, and then it sets out for each impact, here are, here are our options, here are what we consider to be the priorities. And it actually, I think, gives some idea of timelines on which we should think about implementing these things. So it's, it was sort of um, not quite a policy, but laying out all of the issues, laying out all of the potential solutions, laying out some potential implementation strategy around the solutions. And then we went back to the stakeholders with the green paper, consulting them on the, on the content of that, and really tried to, from everything that was there, I guess, pull out what we thought were the most practical um, solutions of the options that are, were presented and what were the most important to implement because you're always dealing with limited resources right? right so you might not be able to implement everything some things might be really great ideas but maybe they're not feasible in the local context so we, we went through all of that sort of thinking to come up with okay from a list of a to z here's the here are the things that we really think we can do and that we should take to our decision makers, meaning the politicians, and say to them, approve this as our policy as to how we're going to respond to climate change. So that process um, got us to the white paper. So, and these are standard terms in generating policy. So the white paper is actually basically your policy before it is approved by cabinet. 
Okay, so the white paper is what we would have taken to cabinet and say, and say, please approve this as our climate change policy. And once they approve it, then it becomes policy. Um, so at every step of the process, we had public consultation. And that was really important because what it allowed us to do is when we got to the stage of cabinet, we were able to say to them, look, this is not just a group of, you know, two or three people who have sat in a government office and thought of ideas. This work that we're, this policy that we're presenting to you is the agreed thinking of over 100 stakeholders in government, in private sector, in, in the nonprofit sector. These are the people, these are your voters, basically. These are your stakeholders. This is what the public wants. We were able to say that to them because we had gone through such a wide consultation. And so it became difficult then, I think, for cabinet to say, well, we're not going to do this because it's basically the mandate of the people, right? The people are saying, this is what we should be doing. So I think because we put so much work into consultation, I think from the beginning, we had very good support at the political level for the policy work that we were doing. So the policy was approved. Um, cabinet also approved the establishment of the climate change committee. So mm -hmm. the committee then sort of became the mechanism through which we started to implement the policy. Now, we, we never really were able to achieve large scale funding of the policy. Like we were never able to go out and get, you know, a $10 million project or $50 million project to go and just implement the policy. Because like I said, BBI doesn't have access to that sort of funding. Um, but we decided that there are some things that are important actions that may not actually require um, a lot of funding, but they might require political will. They may require just programming so that we, we know that we're allocating resource time, um, officers time to maybe it's writing a policy, maybe it's drafting legislation, maybe it's doing better monitoring of calories, whatever it was, there were some things that we knew that it just required um, sort of decisions, you know, and, and commitments to doing certain actions and we could kind of program it and accomplish it through our national budget. So that's where we focus. And then at the same time, we decided that if we're really going to achieve the major things that we've agreed we need to achieve, we need to find a way to access this kind of large scale funding that we don't have access to. And that's where the idea of the Climate Change Trust Fund, which I'm sure you've heard about now, yeah. the Virgin Islands Climate Change Trust Fund was born. Um, and I think one of your questions is, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but one of your questions is what legislation do we have on climate change and right. at the moment that's it we have the virgin islands climate change trust fund act um, i think that act came into force in 2015 we've done a lot of work to establish the trust fund we got to the stage of having our first board of trustees mm -hmm. we got to the stage even of developing an operational manual which was one of the key sort of um instruments that would allow the fund to be actually begin to operate so to go from something on paper to something in reality um, but I think when the new government came in they had a different sort of thinking about how the funds should should operate so that kind of came to I wouldn't say a crash in stop but I guess it's it's been in limbo a little bit unfortunately yeah. for like the last year and a half to two years I think waiting some decision and direction as to where it will go but um I'm still hopeful that <laughs> in the end, um, it will get back on track and it, it will serve the purpose it was meant to serve. So I've talked a lot. I'm going to let you <laughs> respond. 
and move to the next question if you're ready to move to the next one. So as for, so basically are you saying that the only concrete thing that you guys have been able to accomplish with the climate change adaptation and mitigation um, has been the fund or has there been other things as well? You mean, you mean in terms of legislation that exists? No, like actual things that have been put in place or uh, actions okay. that have been done. Well, there was the, the policy, which I think is really important. I didn't really speak to the significance of it, but it kind of creates your roadmap, right? It tells you these are the things that we need to do. Whether or not you immediately accomplishment, accomplish them, I think, you know, that, that speaks to degree of implementation but without the policy you don't have a way forward you, you're lost you don't know what you're supposed to do um and there's no compass to guide you so i think the policy is is a really critical piece of work um and actually actually even though other countries were like 20 years ahead of us the the policy that we developed in bvi really became a model for the other islands in the region which is something i'm pretty proud of um, and it became a model for even some islands in the pacific I think it's a solid policy. I think it's comprehensive. I think it's realistic. It's practical and it's still relevant. And I think that's the important point. Even though 10 years have rolled by, of course, policies need to be updated, but it's not as if you pick it up and you look at it and, and say, well, these things no longer apply. So it's still relevant. So I think that's an important um, piece that we have in place. In fact, I would probably say to you that BVA has all of the critical elements that are in place to lay the foundation or lay the environment for us to really begin the work of adaptation. I think the piece that is missing um, in practice is the funding, which the trust fund really, you know, the, 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 the vessel is there for that funding to become in place. It's a matter of really, and this is political will, this is other things. It's a matter of really us taking up the mantle and, and making sure that fund is activated but we have the policy we have the institutional framework and we have the vehicle to get the funding and those are kind of like the three critical things that you need right and i i would i also would say that we have it needs to continue to be built but we have enough capacity by way of people resources in government in private sector to actually get the work done right and we've um in addition to those things we've actually through partnership with the OECS, the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, um, right? In fact, it was one of the last things I did before I came to this um, opportunity in St. Lucia, but when did the project start? I think it started in 2011 or so, maybe not 2011, sorry, it was more like 2014. Yes, I think it was a five-year project. We were part of this regional project called the GCCA, um, which stands for Global Climate Change Alliance. Um, island Resilience Project. So essentially the OECS, all, all of the member states of the OECS were provided funding. And this was the first time BDI was actually getting funding to do like physical projects on the ground. So that was really exciting. Physical climate change adaptation projects. So we were all given money to do um, a series of projects. And in BVI, um, we did a few things. On the data side, we, we did a hydrologic and hydrology study of two watersheds, um, Bruce Bay and King Garden Bay, where mm -hmm. you know there have been some significant flood issues. So we actually have now data that would help us to design proper drainage systems 
um, for those areas and also critically to restore some of the natural systems, the salt ponds and so forth that were there in those areas and that played the natural function of you know, water, some water retention and filtration and were really critical to not just flood control but water quality in those, in those areas. So we did the hydrology studies. Um, we also did a coastal dynamic study in both Bruce Bay and King Garden Bay. Um, again, as you're aware, those, those, that north coast, those areas get some pretty serious swells. They're what we call the ground sea season. And there's been quite a bit of beach erosion, both in King Garden Bay and Bruce Bay. So we studied the factors that are contributing to the beach erosion. A lot of it has to do with the degradation of the reefs in those, um, in those bays. Um, and we also looked at the issue of the storm. So just like in King Garden Bay, you might be aware that um, there was a lot of issues with during that ground sea season, the road would actually be being washed away because there was that little wall that has been there for like the last 40 years that was crumbling essentially. So the, we did the coastal dynamic study to basically inform the right types of designs that we needed for coastal protection measures in those um, two communities and to help us better understand what was causing the beach erosion and what we could do to, to fix it in a sustainable sort of long-term way. So that's, that was one of the major thrusts of the project that if you're gonna adapt to climate change, you can't just um, go out and start doing. You really have to sit down, you have to get data. You have to get proper data to inform designs that are actually going to work, right? So that was a major principle and premise of the work that we were doing. So we did those assessments. Um, in King Garden Bay, we actually have a really good design for um, restoration of at least one of the wetlands in King Garden Bay in sort of the area where you know where the when you get down to the bottom of when you get down into King Garden Bay you come to an area where they have like a lot of equipment stored and it's kind of like a junkyard kind of um yeah, right kind of, yeah. King Garden Bay. yeah so that used to be that in the back there that used to be salt ponds mangroves like the entire that was an entire network of salt ponds and mangroves along the King Garden Bay area and they've all been filled in over time and that's really the reason that there's so many issues with flooding but we had a really good design for the restoration of a salt pond um, the issue was not having the funding under that project to actually get it done and this is where if we had the trust fund in place projects like that would be able to be rolled out right right um, so I'm really hopeful that that does actually come on stream. But the other thing that we actually did do, um, we did some drainage works in King Garden Bay as well, as well as in Bruce Bay to try to minimize the flood issues. And I, I think what was gratifying to me was, um, you'd remember the, was it the 20, when was the major flood that we had? Was it 2013? I think it was in 2010. I can't remember the dates exactly. But there was a major flood, right? And that was before we started our project. And then there was a flood of 2017. And the timing worked out such that we had just completed that drainage project like two weeks, three weeks at most, but I don't think it was three weeks, about two weeks before that flood. And we actually have video footage of King Garden Bay in the flood before. That was a flood that actually like ripped up the entire road. I mean, the entire village was flooded below in the, and we have a video of King Garden being at the same location where we did the drain 
in the flood of 2017, which was actually a more, more intense flood. I think the years were 2000 and I want to say it was, nah, I might mix up the years. But the point I'm trying to make is it was like night and day, a simple drainage project. I think that project was about 20,000 US dollars. It wasn't a major investment, but a simple drainage project was able to take a situation from one of like crisis where you have lost a road, community is cut off, like a lot of homes, a lot of properties are flooded to a situation where yes, there's a lot of stormwater flowing over the road, but the road is intact. There's not any significant flooding. People can still pass on the road. So it was just like night and day. Um, and more projects like that, of course, need to be done. But again, these are projects that were designed based on having done the hydrology study, having collected the data. So you know that when you design something, it's actually gonna solve the problem. Right. In Garden Bay, we also built, and again, the timing was just kind of serendipitous to, I think, demonstrate the importance of going through this process of data collection and proper engineering before just going and like spending money on a solution that might not work because you haven't taken the time to study it and design it properly. So the other thing we did was that seawall that was that had failed really and the road was about to collapse in King Garden Bay. We used the data from the coastal dynamic study that I talked about and we had a, a rock revetment properly engineered by a, a, actually a regional engineering firm that's pretty well known and constructed the construction of that seawall not seawall, sorry, rock revetment is the right term. The construction of that rock revetment was completed, I think, in August of 2017. And of course, Hurricane Irma came in September, early September 2017. The rock revetment was designed to withstand a category four hurricane. And of course, Irma was a category five. And literally, besides some debris that had been scattered on the revetment, it held up beautifully. The road behind it was intact. It served the purpose that it was designed to serve. And when you compare that to other nearby communities, Carrot Bay, for example, right, where the road was entirely washed out, like the yeah. road became sand, um, homes was destroyed. Like in my book, The Irma Diaries, there's a story there called Fire Dance. And a home actually caught fire in King Garden Bay because the seawater basically ignited a, a, a fire in the, well, it really started in the vehicle and it spread to the home. But it's just like two communities side by side and the simple investment of a rock revetment in one community, right? That was able to keep the storm surge at bay, protect the road, um, protect the properties behind the road versus Carrot Bay where you didn't have that type of investment. The road is washed out, homes along the road, you know, significantly destroyed. So again, you know, these little projects, I think they were meant to be pilot projects to really demonstrate the types of interventions that we can have. And these are inter engineering interventions. But right. like I said, we did do some designs like the restoration of the salt pond, which is on the eco-engineering side of things, which is one of the things that we really want to encourage as well. Like the first and best line of defense you can have is really having healthy ecosystems. Um, so I think I'll stop there because there's more that we did under the project, but I think that can give you a sense of some of the tangibles right, right. we've been able to do as well. Yeah. So, and with more funding, I think the opportunities are just kind of endless because there's right. so much to be done. <laughs> so for the things like the hydrology study yes. and the actual um, designing of the 
projects that you guys do and who do you guys have to collaborate with? Mm, right. So um, the work was basically hired out to the, ex you know, the relevant experts. Um, so government, the OECS basically served as the contracting body. So they, okay. they dealt with the contracting and the procurement aspect of things. But the Ministry of Natural Resources and Labor, where I worked, we were sort of the local implementing agency. So we were responsible for basically handling the day-to-day -day management of the project, making sure that everything went off successfully, smoothly. So that meant um, in terms of partnerships, of course, constant interaction with OECS, but also um, working with the Public Works Department, which was responsible for supervising the project, mm -hmm. as well as the, so we had, a con we had contractors, the people who actually built the thing, but we also had the design engineers, the one who did the designing beforehand. And the design engineers have an important role to play in the supervision of the construction. So you don't want to just, <clears throat> sorry, design something and hand it off, but you also need to be on site and make sure that they're building it according to how you specify that it should be built. So I guess the partnerships um, and the interactions really went between the ministry as the on the ground, um, sort of implementing agency, the OECS as the contracting entity. They're the ones who had the money and that were actually hiring people to work mm -hmm. on behalf of us. Um, then we had the design engineers, right? And the people who did the assessments who were the professionals um, who had the expertise to do the, the various studies and the various designs. And once, <clears throat> sorry, once they had finished that work, they would hand it off to the contractors who, you know, don't necessarily have expertise in that particular thing. For example, the rock revetment. That was the first time that we had um, a rock revetment of that nature, meaning properly engineered, constructed in BVA. So the, the construction company would not have necessarily had experience in doing it, but they had the supervision of the public works department hand in hand with the supervision of the firm that would have designed it. So we were able to get it right. Okay. And so then yeah mm -hmm. sorry go ahead so the experts as you call them the people who actually did the assessment and the designing those were the people who got hired in yes those persons okay. those were hired in the contractors in the end they were local contractors okay. um the persons who did the assessments um the firms that did the assessment as well as the design i should say that they did both so we kind of had like a design um we had a study design consultancy um, okay. where they were, they were hired to assess the problem. So to do the hydrology study, to do the coastal dynamic study, and then come up with designs to address the issues that we had identified to them, which were flooding and coastal erosion. So they studied and they were like, okay, here's, the, here's what the data is telling us and here's the solution that we recommend you implement. Um, and I should say that in all of this, there was consultation. So it was not done in a vacuum. So there was a consultation at the level of government to decide, okay, we have this pot of money from the OECS. What are the priority things? What do we actually want to do with the money? So there was consultation at that level to decide, okay, um, you know, it was, I forget the specific sum of money, but it wasn't a whole lot in terms of the laundry list of things that we could have potentially done, right? So even that process was a very negotiated process and one based on a lot of consultation. We, we talked to several agencies, public works, water and sewage, um, conservation and fisheries. We talked to several agencies to try to get a sense from them as to 
where do you think we could achieve the most value with the resources that we have available to us? And from all of the discussions we had, we agreed, and it was a, it was a committee level decision with climate change, um, the National Climate Change Committee. So we used the vehicle of the committee to get to all of the key stakeholders that we wanted to consult. And at the end, we had a decision at the level of the committee. So it wasn't Angela deciding that these are the projects we should do. It was the National Climate Change Committee. And we would have been guided by the policy to make sure that the projects that we were implementing were reflective of the policy that we had approved, right? Or that we had recommended that cabinet approve. So didn't, we didn't want to be doing something that would have been contrary to our policy, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that wasn't meeting the policy objectives. So there was consultation at that level. And then at the actual level of doing the study, as well as um, coming up with the designs, there was, there was consultation at the level of the community, the public. So when we were doing the study, for example, on the hydrology, we didn't just have people come in who have never experienced a flood in King Island Bay and write a policy just based on going out in the field and collecting data. We actually had community meetings where they, um, and we have, you know, really good photos, for example, showing them walking with people from the community, with the community members drawing maps of, you know, where, which areas flood, um, recalling from their experience, you know, how much, how high the water would rise in certain areas. So data that, data coming from experiences that they've had, that the consultants would not be able to go and right. pick up just from me taking measurements in the field, right? Um, and you have to be able to extract that kind of community knowledge where mm -hmm. you don't have strong systems in place like rain gauges throughout King Anime to tell you how much water is falling in different parts of the watershed. So we had a lot of that type of um, community involvement in the, in the study as part of it. Um, and then when it came to the designs, we also had some consultation with the community to tell them, hey, the assessment was done. And here, here are what the professionals are telling us the best solutions are for this area. So we try to involve the public um, at every stage of the week. And I think we could have even in retrospect done more of that kind of consultation at the, at the point of the project implementation. I think the more you consult, ultimately the, the more successful your efforts are because you have greater support at the community level. You have greater buy-in for what you're doing and people have a higher high level of appreciation for why the solution is not X, but it's Y. So that in the future, you know, they don't just say, well, we see that you built Y here, but I still believe that X makes sense, yeah. right? If when I'm gonna do it across the street, I'm gonna do X. So I would strongly say that, yeah, public consultation, I think when it comes to the environment, climate change is a critical part of getting the work done and making sure that what you do today is not ripped up tomorrow or what you do today is replicated in other areas, right? Mm -hmm. Because it has to be like a systematic holistic approach. Okay, so I actually was going to kind of ask about how you find the um, ease of relaying this kind of information or collaborating with both the political and the private citizen side of it has been because when it comes to climate change issues in other places like the states, we can definitely see there's a lot of like backlash and mistrust, but do you find that type of thing here where you're working or is it like? Um, I have personally experienced that kind of backlash, but it's been more so in a social media setting where um, perhaps the backlash was 
coming from people who have a stake in BVI, but maybe are not necessarily um, living in BVI and sort of in the community day to day, perhaps residing stateside, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's definitely not a situation where there's wholesale acceptance, I think. And there have been a lot of recent theories about, you know, for example, at the time of Irma, a lot of, of talk about a machine, a heart machine, creating stronger hurricanes. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, uh, opposing information out there. And I think it can become really confusing for, you know, members of the public who are really just trying to get to the truth. They're trying to, to, to figure things out, right? So the ease of communicating, I mean, I think by and large, like I, I, I tried to indicate before, I think we've been successful um, getting to people to appreciate that whatever you might believe the cause is, there are changes happening in the climate, significant changes that will impact us, right? I think there's still more work to be done in, in terms of getting people to appreciate why these changes are happening um, and exactly what it is that we need to do to respond. Um, I know that coming out of Irma, one of the things that I had hoped would happen is that people would kind of have like a really, you know, first-hand eye-opening experience to say, well, whoa, this is, this is what we've been talking about when we talk about climate change. But I think there's still sort of this perception that this was probably just a freak event, you know, as opposed to understanding that this is part of a longer term trend, right? So while I did say that we've had success in public awareness, I by no means mean to imply that the work is done. Um, there's still a lot to do to get people to really appreciate what we, what we mean when we talk about climate change impacts, to really appreciate why it is happening, because I think the why is important, um, because what you believe about the way really influences your philosophy about what you can do to respond, right? Mm -hmm. And your power to respond and the approach to responding. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but uh, I can certainly say that unless you're able to find a way to have a conversation, even with the people that may not agree with you, right? Um, you're not going to make progress. So for example, I remember, this isn't climate change specific, but at some point in my career at Conservation and Fisheries, we decided to tackle like a beach policy for King Garden Bay. And I remember the first time I was a young officer, I went down to King Garden Bay and one of the vendors on the beach, um, uh, responsible for a lot of the beach chairs, I was there, he literally greeted me with a series of bad words, like, cost me think I was in my pol my polo shirt conservation and fisheries didn't allow me to say a word and it was just like a very confrontational situation um so we didn't at that stage get to have a conversation but we didn't walk away from it and throw our hands up we continue to try to engage um and sometimes it's just knowing the right way to engage knowing the right way to approach knowing the right messenger you know like maybe I was not the right person to speak to him maybe mm -hmm. it was somebody else, um, establishing a rapport, finding common ground. But I think, and I don't, I don't mean to make this sound easy because it's not, um, it's very difficult. But I think if, there are always going to be competing interests, you yeah. know? 
And as environmentalists, we have to find a way to have a conversation with the people that have competing interests and get them to appreciate that it's not this black and white choice between protecting the environment and that somehow equally no economy and not protecting the environment at that equals economy. I think people have this really skewed perception that those are the options. Right. And it's my firm belief that those are not the options. I think the more we protect the environment, especially in our context where, for me, protecting the environment equals dollars, right? So I think the, the more we can help people see and appreciate those linkages, the better off we'll be, the more successful we will be in our work. But it starts with getting people to understand the linkages. Um, and it can't be us just talking out to like, you know, mass media. I think we have to take the time and find the opportunities to directly engage with the stakeholders who we know do not agree with us, who we know hold opposing views, you know, and try to bring them around the table and actually engage them in dialogue have a conversation because I can tell you that experience in King Adam, taught me a lot. Like the same guy who greeted me with bad words, I wasn't the one who actually ended up having the conversations with him in the end. Like I said, sometimes it's a matter of getting your messenger right, but somebody else from the department was able to very successfully engage him in the end. And he opened up, he shared his perspectives and we were able to find some common ground and agree to certain things. Now, for various reasons, the policy never got finalized and implemented, but I think there was a potential for it to have been and for us to have made that progress. And I'm just trying to illustrate the importance of engagement, because if we had just gone down there and said like a top-down approach, this is the solution for King Garden B, no more beach chairs, um, or you can only put your beach chairs there. Um, in, in the lack of an environment we you have really strong laws and really strong enforcement, while we may have gotten a government to agree with us, which again, may not have been likely unless we were able to show them that, hey, this is something that everybody buys into, that everybody agrees to, right? Um, politicians are always uncomfortable when they know that you're bringing something to them that will be unpopular, right? So the more that you yeah. can show that people buy into this, people agree, this is what people want, the better your chances of getting support is. But you know, in BVA, we have a very poor history, very poor culture of one, having strong laws and two, enforcing those laws where they actually do exist. So if we had just gone in there with a bullheaded top-down approach, this is how we're gonna fix it. Even like I said, if that approach had been approved, I think it would have ultimately failed because it would have simply not been enforced and people would have done what they wanted in an environment where they were not consulted and they did not buy into the plan. But if we took the time to actually consult with the stakeholders and have people buy into, this is how the this is how the beach could work and function much better, and everybody can still make their money, but we can do a better job of pre 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 preserving the beach. We can offer a better experience to tourists. If we got that kind of agreement, then maybe there's not even need to have a policy and legislation right. to enforce it because it's it's people will have a personal incentive, right, and and stake in 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 enforcing it. Um, so I think that was an important lesson for me. And I'm now, I'm kind of going through a personal, very, very personal experience with another beach, which is um, Long Bay Beach Island, a, very, a beach that has a lot of personal significance to me where that beach is now rapidly becoming developed and kind of going down the same slippery slope as King Adam yeah. Bay. And I'm trying to 
in an environment where I feel like there's not a lot of support, trying to even think through in my head, how do I begin to quote unquote fight this? And when I say fight this, I mean, how do I begin to try to have a conversation with the people that are there vending who and, and supported by at the level of the politicians who have very different interests from me? How do we have a conversation about how you can accomplish your objective of making a dollar without destroying the beach, which in my view is what is happening. And I think there is a very easy solution to it, but right now there's just not a conversation happening that allows people to see, sometimes people have a very tunnel vision. They're only seeing their end, their, you know, and their, their means to the end, and they don't see other options for how that end can be achieved. And there are always other options. I think sometimes it's just about showing people what are the alternatives to achieve the, the thing and sometimes it's just having a lack of exposure right where they, they don't see how other countries have done it right um, in the neighboring countries like megan's bay i think is a good example of where they've been able to for the most part you know really manage a beach in such a way that you can have commercial activity but it's it's not like overpowering the the beach experience right so um, is that what you had in mind for how they could go forward with the with the development at long bay um, not necessarily a copycat of Megan's Bay, but I think they've, in many ways, they've been successful in doing things like noise control, keeping a clean environment. Um, I don't think they've got it 100% right. There are things that I would do differently, but I think that um, for the most part, it presents a good model. It's certainly a better model than what we have going at the moment. Um, so that's a fight that I intend to take up, but I think you have to be so strategic in these things. And, it's, and you know, I think the other thing is that you asked about partnerships. I realized that I can't just go in there and do it on my own. So part of it is finding the right people to partner with. So you're working with, you're working as a group. It's not Angela Burnett. It's, you know, whoever the group is of people, of stakeholders who bring all kinds of different talents and strengths and perspectives to the table, right? To, to fight this particular fight. Um, and there was one other point I know I wanted to make. I can't remember to which question it might relate, but going back to what I said earlier about how I got into this, was, which was really experiences I had as a kid. I think one of the things that I constantly think about is we're never going to really get a change in mindset, which I think is perhaps forgetting legislation, forgetting policy, forgetting funding, if we just were somehow able to achieve a um, shift in mindset, right, of the, the people who call BVI home, where they really begin in a way that perhaps you and I have a natural respect and love for the environment, right? If you get that mind shift, then there's no need to legislate the fact that people should not litter because they just wouldn't litter, right? There's no need to tell people in law, don't build right up against the beach because they would understand that doing that impacts the beach and they wouldn't want to take that decision. So I'm not saying we don't need laws, but I'm saying that we can legislate the heck out of BVI, but if we don't do something to achieve that mind shift, right, then I feel like we're just always going to be in a losing battle. Right. And I know people talk a lot about the importance of education, the youth, and it just sounds like so... Like, yeah, okay, that's great. But what tangible benefit is that going to actually have? Like, how is that actually going to out the fire that's lit right now? But it, it's, it's so true. Like, if you don't 
if you don't find a way, and for me, it's really about getting kids out in nature. And I think this is something that needs to be built into the curriculum. Like no child should go through certainly secondary school. They should not graduate from high school without having seen a coral reef. I'm sure if I like did a survey in BVI right now, it would be a, an appalling percentage of people who've never actually snorkeled and seen a coral reef. Yeah, I, so haven't. What, I haven't seen one. <laughs> like, why would you care about protecting a coral reef if you don't even know what it looks like? You've not experienced like the awe of actually seeing a coral reef and like having that natural like love for the thing and fascination of it. Like, you know, unless you have a really great imagination, like you probably, you don't, like, it's a simple rule. Like you, you, you care about things, you only protect things that you care about and you only care about things that you have a connection to, right? So for me, it's that simple. Like we have to put more focus on connecting the youth to the environment because the youth eventually become the decision makers. Like in a span of 10 years, you go from being a kid in school to the person making decisions at some level in the society. So, like I said, for me, no kid should graduate high school without seeing a coral reef, even if it's on a glass bottom boat, you know, if they can't swim. They should not graduate without going on a hike so they can appreciate a gut and like what it looks like and how it functions. They should go to a salt pond. They should go like wading through mangroves, you know, they should go to the beach and just spend the afternoon at the beach. Like a lot of kids come from homes where they don't have the privileges that I had as a kid to have those outdoor experiences. They should go bird watching. They should go in the forest. Like, and I think these are valuable experiences. And if they don't have these experiences that connect them with nature, then they grow up not caring about nature and then they have no incentive to protect it, right? And we never get that change in mind shift. Like I grew up going turtle watching at night. Like I've seen a leatherback turtle since I was probably five years old. I've seen leatherbacks hatch. I've seen them come to lay eggs. I would never think about destroying a beach that's a, that is a total nesting beach, you know? So, yeah, I, <laughs> that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, and I, I don't think it's happening. And I know people have talked about the environment in the curricula, but I think the most powerful thing you could do is actually getting kids out in the environment, not having them read about the environment in a textbook. I don't think that's going to solve the problem. I feel like... Um, anyway, Katanji. <laughs> Go I, ahead. I, I was, I was going to say, I'm talking way too much and I don't want to take your time. No, yeah, that's okay. It's probably been... Um, uh -huh. point you were making about people getting more connected to nature. I feel like, especially with the COVID-19 stuff going on, people are like becoming more aware of it. All of the people who do like tours of the national parks and those things are seeing a lot of traffic with their um services so i think that yeah, yeah. Kind of people are feeling like a salvation for the outdoors <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a that's perhaps an unexpected but very positive yeah outcome of the whole covid situation lockdown has had us craving for some outdoor activity mm -hmm. so i feel like you actually have answered probably most of my questions already so as to the greatest barriers that you met in progress to the type of work you do, you identified funding already, um, I guess mm -hmm. lack of legislation, um, mm -hmm. the approach where it's not in the 
because um, we have in some cases we have we have legislation but the the enforcement capacity is very limited mm -hmm. the resources are not there for the enforcement and to be very frank and very honest there's a lot of political interference there's not there is not the political will to um enforce legislation or even create legislation and that's that's I would be very honest with you and tell you, I think that's why we don't have any stronger environmental laws because there's not the political will to, to take the environment seriously. And I think at the end of the day, right, the decisions that politicians make are really a reflection of our, our values because they're only trying to do things that are popular, right? So I think it, at the end of the day, it all boils back down to, for me, the most important thing is that mind shift. If we have a population that cares about the environment as much as they care about the economy, then a lot of our problems would just, you know, they would naturally like dissipate because people would act in a certain way on their own without having to be compelled or forced or mandated to do it. So I think that was the answer to my next question, which was if we step back and look at the holistic scene of environmental management in the BVI, what's the most present thing you think we need to change or do? I believe that's basically that would be it. Like I, people talk about things like educating people not to litter, right? I would never waste a dollar telling people not to litter. I think it's just absurd that you should even have to tell somebody not to litter, right? I think teach the person to respect and appreciate the environment, and then they, as a result, they would not litter. They only litter because. They don't have any value. They don't have any appreciation, any respect. Like, how do you go to the beach and litter is just totally beyond my comprehension, right? So, yeah, I, I, I really think that what I talked about, the, the, that Connect Care Act, that, that's how I summarize it in my head. You're never going to get action without, without people caring about something, you're not gonna get people to care if they don't have a connection. And connections don't just happen in thin air, they happen through experiences. And those strong connections are best built um, when people are in childhood, like, you know, as kids, they're best, they're best built there. So, and I'm not saying that that's the only solution in itself, right? Don't get me wrong. Um, the legislation is very important as well. The right policies, the political will, um, all of these things, but I do think that change in mind mindset is kind of like a fundamental thing. As a society, we just don't value the environment as we should, and I think that's just the that's just the fact. We do not give it the level of respect and priority that it should have, and it can't be on the shoulders of a few technical people to to value and appreciate it. No, it has to be it has to be something across the board. Okay. So, um, the next question. So, yeah, I think this is a question that my classmates might probably really want to know the answer to because this semester we've been looking a lot at how we ourselves, instead of like policing other people, how we ourselves can live more sustainably. But mm -hmm. we know that a lot of the conventional options that are open to people in places like the state are really limited here in the islands, like recycling in the USVI, they don't have that. And mm -hmm. a lot of the more sustainable options are not available or not affordable here in the BVI or the USVI. So mm -hmm. 
what do what have you been doing in your own life to live more sustainably and what advice would you give to people who are just starting out and have these limitations right good question so i mean i think sometimes we maybe overlook like the little things that actually add up and have a big impact, right? Um, and, and, the, and the decisions that are kind of like within our control. Um, and I think we've been programmed to think that living sustainably is, is we've, we've been limited to think about it in kind of like a consumer type fashion. And I think that right. comes from the movement really being in the US, right? But I think for us, living sustainably for me, I think the bigger decisions are like whether or not I'm throwing trash in the gut, right? That's going to end up polluting the, the sea. It, it's a decision like that. Do I keep my trash in my vehicle until I get to a bin or do I just toss it out the window, right? That's a living sustainable decision in our context that I think is, is critical. It's things like when I go to build my house, am I going to clear cut the land, right? So that now every time it rains, it means that there's sediment running off my land, flowing into a waterway or on the road and eventually ending up in a drain. And then, you know, 15 minutes after it starts to rain, the sea is brown, right? So I think if anything, be there landowners, right? And we have control over our land. And I would say that for me, the most important decision that you know, property owners in BVI make that affects our environment is, is how they develop their land. And that's a decision that I think everybody has control over. And it starts with just even thinking about, like I said, the clear custody of the land. For whatever reason, we have this culture, this practice of, I need to see my land. I need to cut all the trees so I can see what the land looks like. But now we have, we have technology, we have drones, we have GIS, we have all sorts of things that would help us visualize and appreciate our land without having to like cut every tree in order to see it, right? Or even doing things like planting a tree, right? Like that, that's a serious, important action that you could take. Um, not cutting down the mangroves, right? Allowing, and some people just go and cut the mangroves and throw dirt to you know, create extra land that just actually sits there. They don't actually do anything with it in the end. So for me, in our context, in an island context, how we treat our land and how we treat our natural environment is actually, and these are day-to-day -day decisions and actions, are actually the things that are most important in terms of us having a sustainable, like a sustainable lifestyle, right? And not just what we do ourselves, but how do we react when we see because I think we have to hold each other accountable, right? Like when we see somebody litter, do we just just not say anything? Like if a friend of yours was to litter, do you, do you hold them accountable for it or do you just turn the other eye and not say anything, right? Or if your neighbor, you see a neighbor doing something with their land that you know is not good, do you go and try to intervene? Do you say something? So I think that kind of being accountable for yourself, but also helping your neighbor to be accountable is important. And then at the level of kind of like the consumer level, right? When you think about the products that we use and whatnot, yes, we don't have recycling, but I think actually the better way to tackle our waste problem is to try to reduce on the amount of waste that we produce in the first place. So a simple thing like 
I carry this water bottle with me every day. Like wherever I go, I have my water bottle and I refill it. So I never, like I, it would have to be a real tight situation where you see me with a plastic bottle of water that I'm gonna drink and toss out the next second, right? So I think simple things like carrying a water bottle, um, you know, taking a dish, if you're gonna buy lunch out, not taking a styrofoam container, but um, taking a dish with you and asking them to put the food in the, in the dish or even encouraging, like I've, I've been a patron of um, restaurants and have said to them, look, I wanna buy food here, I've been your loyal customer, but I don't wanna have my food in a styrofoam container. Why don't you get, you know, the um, cornstarch dishes or you can make suggestions to businesses that you support and frequent and tell them, Hey, I, you know, I, I want to be your customer, but I don't appreciate the fact that I come to you as a mechanic and I see you pouring oil in the drain, right? Like you should put X, Y, Z system in place. So I think it's about um, simple little things that we could do in our lives. We have a culture in BVI of buying those packs of water bottles. So many households do it, right? Um, and that's, a, that's like a, that's a way stream that we could just totally eliminate like it does not need to exist at all <laughs> it could be completely eliminated right and then the question of having to recycle the plastic bottles doesn't even arise right we could just eliminate that waste stream and i think that's true of a lot of um a lot of waste streams um but you think so, that if we um if we kind of just did the refilling water thing that there would be enough places where people could access refillable water for that to actually work because one of my classmates said they tried it and they basically had to go without water for a week or so because they didn't have enough places nearby to refill their water oh well maybe it depends on your context so for example for me and this one this is true in Viva as well i would take my water bottle with me to work right and there's a water cooler in most offices mm -hmm. there's a water cooler so i would refill my my bottle um using the water cooler at work most buildings if you go to a meeting outside of work there's a water cooler i think if you're a student you'd most likely have access to a water cooler somewhere on your campus as well um so i, I mean this might not work for everybody yeah but hey if one bottle of water is not going to take you through the day take two you know <laughs> like i think that there are ways that if you're really serious about it right like i drive around with i always have like some kind of water in my vehicle so if for some reason i my my bottle that's with me and i can't fill it i have some kind of extra supply so i i mean having public places where you can refill the water would certainly help. Um, but I feel like if you're serious about doing it, you could find ways. Like there's always, what does Bob Marley say? Where there's a will, there's always a way. <laughs> I kind of live by that philosophy because the reality is that I think people, people sit around too often for things to be convenient in order for them to, to adopt or make a change, right? Um, or for government to like, make everything easy and at their fingertips. But the reality is that we're just not going to, you know, have that level of, um, like, I, I don't think that, I don't think our economy and our systems of government allow for, you know, that kind of magical at your fingertips 
um, <laughs> kind of, you know, expectation that people might have to actually exist, right? right? I think we have to take more personal responsibility. And I mean, there's a lot that happens in the space of energy and energy wastage, you know, how many TVs stay on um, hours on end without being watched? I mean, I, I personally know offices where at the end of the day, every computer is left on, the lights are left on, um, supposedly for security reasons, the air conditioning is left on. Even simple things like offices, not um, how we build. I think there's a major problem in not just BVI, but the Caribbean with sick buildings. So we build these buildings, um, basically using American standards, not considering our local environment. And there's always an issue with our, our air conditioning systems where like, if I take the central administrative complex, for example, I'm not making this up. I worked in a part of that building for about six months where it was so cold that I would wear a wool, full length, long sleeve winter jacket, a scarf and gloves in the office. And I would still be cold, right? Mm -hmm. And the cost and the amount of energy that is wasted, right, to freeze me and everybody else in the building and basically eliminate our productivity is like incalculable. It's huge, right? And that is being duplicated across so many offices, right? So just even getting something as simple as temp temperature control, right, in our buildings and buildings to more suit our environment, like, I think the best thing that happened to the admin building was when Armand knocked out the windows and people realized, okay, there's a serious cat fight happening outside. People realized that, whoa, it's actually nice and breezy. And if we had windows that would open, we don't, we probably don't need to run the AC for like half the day, right? It would just be cool. So I think, I think a lot of it goes to um, building. I don't think we, we think about how we build and where we build enough in, in BVI. You know, people build big houses and then you go inside and you have to have an AC unit in your bedroom because otherwise it's hot, right? Whereas as soon as you walk outside on your balcony, like the wind is knocking you down, but you haven't taken the time to design your house in such a way that there's proper cross ventilation and flow, right? So that you have natural cooling, natural lighting. So there's a lot of things at, at that level that I think, I think when we think about sustainability, like we, we oftentimes just think about, like I said, the bottle and the recycling and we, we don't think about it at a deeper level, which I think for us is where we really need to be focused to actually have the kind of impact that we need. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's fair enough because I guess there's just really a limit to what we could do at the consumer level when we're so dependent on yeah, and a lot of it is economies of scale. I mean, I know from being a part of the recycling conversation, it's not that we haven't tried, but the economies of scale just make it difficult sometimes to do those things. But like I said, and this has been studied actually, like we could have a much bigger impact if we just straight out eliminated some waste streams that just right. don't really exist in the first place. Water bottles and styrofoams are two perfect examples. So I completely agree with you. I have my, my reusable water bottle here and I have to fight with my family to stop buying the cases. But yes, same here. <laughs> same here. Don't stop fighting. Okay, so yeah. on to the next question. In the papers that you've written for like the policy and that kind of thing, 
you talk a lot about the vulnerabilities that we have to climate change impacts and you again explored the vulnerability of the intensified hurricanes even more in the Irma Diaries. Yeah. Oh, you have your copy? Yeah, I have it. <laughs> so, I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed it if you've read it all. It was traumatizing. I couldn't get through the whole thing. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting the reactions that I get. Some people say it's very like therapeutic. Um, no? <laughs> right, but what's the question now? Yeah, so as a normal citizen who is anticipating greater impacts from climate change, what are your greatest personal concerns? Oh boy, the hurricanes. <laughs> Seriously. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, if we just think about the fact that, is it nine countries? So there was Hurricane Irma in 2017, right? Mm -hmm. That um, knocked out, I think six islands got a direct hit from Hurricane Irma. Then everybody was like, oh, a freak event. Two weeks later, you get Hurricane Maria, right? That devastates Dominica and Puerto Rico. Then... So that's 2017. Then 2019, we get um, Dorian, mm -hmm. right? That just like, like totally annihilated um, Bahamas. the Bahamas, right? And, and broke all kinds of norms. In fact, all of those, those three hurricanes were record breaking. So there you have in the span of 2017 to 2019, two years, three record breaking hurricanes that together devastated nine Caribbean countries, right? Nine out of like, what, 22 Caribbean countries? So just like imagine, right, if this is the trajectory for the region um, where these hurricanes, these, these major hurricanes, category four, category five hurricanes become more frequent in the region, right? And in the span of three years, you've had nine out of 22 countries. I think, how many countries are there in the Caribbean? 20 something. So you have like a third at least of your islands being devastated from a hurricane and you see in our context and it's, we're not unique, you don't recover from a hurricane like that in a year. You know, it takes, we're still recovering from Oman. That was three years ago. It's probably going to take us a good six years to physically, physically rebuild. And then the, when you think about the actual economic impact and the years of development that you've been set behind, yeah. Because you just spent the last six years, instead of progressing, you just spent it trying to rebuild, right? Imagine if Irma were to come in 2021, and we have to do that. We haven't even fully recovered. We have to do that all over again, right? Um, and I'm not just trying to paint like doomsday scenario. I'm, I'm trying to say that the data shows us that these hurricanes, I think I, I lay out the numbers in the Irma diaries, right? The probability of hurricane Omas is becoming like exponentially higher, mm -hmm. right? So when I was a little girl, I think the probability of a hurricane Irma was, let me not get the, the numbers wrong. I think it was like one in 360 or something like that in any given year. When hurricane Irma actually happened, that probability had increased to one in 180, right? And within my lifetime, if I live to be an old lady, the probability will increase 
further to like one in 90. So within my lifetime, we go from one in, I think it's 360 or a number somewhere up there, right? So a very low probability, like a, a rare, a true freak event to be in an event that, you know, is less than a one in hundred year recurrence, right? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's like a drastic difference. It means that these are the kind of hurricanes that are going to be the hurricanes of the future, right? Yeah. And I mean, the, I can't even begin to tell you the level of the, the shift in building standards that would be required to withstand something like that. And then even if you get your buildings right, the environment, right, the economic, the, the impact on your environment, your tourism product, like I, I, I really think it makes me question the viability of the Caribbean if we have a future that is defined by hurricanes of that nature. The hurricane um, tracks are not going to change. We're not going to get up and like move across the move across the planet. We're stuck where we are, um, and so I I really think the the stronger hurricanes, more intense hurricanes, are one of our greatest threats um, when it comes to climate change. That and and sea level rise, which I think is kind of um, understated because it's happening on a, on a slower, um, you know, more incremental sort of pace. So we don't see it in our face in, in, in the sense of a major disaster, but it's happening. It's happening every day. And, you know, at some point, like we'll see it, you know, 25, 50 years down the road, but our coastlines will not be what we know them to be today. So I think those two things are the things that perhaps worry me the most, but first would be the hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. And I think even, on a personal level, you know, and I've heard many people say, you know, I can do a hurricane Irma once, like it nearly killed me. And you, the death rate actually doubled after Irma, right? Like mm -hmm. it has a stress and psychological impact on people. So people have said, you know, I can, can perhaps recover from an Irma like once in my life, but that's it. If this were to happen again, I can't go through that again. And so I think you will see if we have these recurring disasters, it will create real questions and challenges for our continued like viability and even people willingness psychological willingness to you know continue to call islands their home okay i kind of like shared the same views i figure i was just being overly pessimistic but that's just the no. reality i mean it's real i think we try not to and i'm an optimistic person so i'm not trying to paint doom and gloom I'm certainly not the one to say let's pack up and move. Like that would never be my solution. But I think unless we realize how serious the threat is, then we're never gonna take the necessary action to prepare, right? And I think it's important that people, like I was saying, I was hoping that Irma would have been a wake up call because you know, I think everybody was shocked at the level of devastation. But I think, unfortunately, people still believe that this was a freak event and this is not going to happen again in my lifetime. And before climate change, that was probably true. But Oma was just like a data point in a trend, right? <laughs> and it's exactly the trend that scientists predict. So we could have an Oma. I mean, I can't put a, a year on it, but it's possible that we would have another Oma in our lifetime or, you know, even next year, you just don't know that the situation has changed and is changing. And the, the scientific reality is that the probabilities are just much more than they were before. 
So, um, touching on what you said about being an optimistic person, I like the the note that you wrote in the book when you signed it for me. It was like to a new future. So, ah. <laughs> you have some level of optimism, and I'm guessing it's based on something since you work in this field of um climate change. So. Are you optimistic about the global community's ability and will to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees? Well, now that Trump is no longer president, yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, Kristen, I actually, I actually tried to. Oh, wow. When he was elected, and it was, it was, it was because of his stance on climate change. I mean, I think we've lost <clears throat> the last four years. The momentum we had finally started to gain with Obama as president and the US for so long was like the, the global obstacle to there being some real, um, I think, sea change. Mm -hmm. And Obama finally came on board and was bringing the US on board. And then there was just like a complete reversal. And I think if the US had come on board and shown that leadership, then you would have had other key countries like that have been dragging their feet, like Australia and Canada, like the real key players that we need. But the last four years, like I said, have just, I think, been devastated in terms of the global response um, because you've just had that not just lack of leadership but just movement in the opposite direction um, from a leadership perspective right um, from the US so even with even with that said I, I, it's not that the US has not been doing anything because the people the people have been acting at the level of their states people have been acting at the level of their right. communities right um, so Again, that just goes to people, I think, having where there's a will, there's always a way, right? Not because we have a president that's not going to act. We still want to act, so they find a way to do it. Um, so, I, I mean, in life, like I said, I believe in optimism. If not, you might as well just, like, roll over and, and go in the grave, right? So, I, I believe that in order to have a change achieved, you first have to believe that a change is possible. So, I do believe that a change is possible the window of time that we have available to make it is is narrowing but i don't think we're at a point where it cannot happen just today i saw an interesting news article um on the bbc a young um japanese guy with cnn a young japanese guy has just invented some technology to um remove carbon dioxide from from the atmosphere right so that that's that there's that as well there are changes in technology I think the global awareness about climate change um, has certainly been increasing. Um, and the, the more we increase that, I think the, the better our chances are, no matter who, you know, which political leader we might get in power that doesn't do, or is not themselves compelled to do the right thing. I think when the public starts to demand something after a point, the politicians just kind of have to fall in line, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I am optimistic. Uh, and I think I'm also optimistic that in the islands, we can still start to do the things that we need to do to, to better prepare ourselves, right? And um, I certainly believe that we can take a lot of actions by way of helping to fight climate change, meaning like reducing our carbon footprint. But for me, I think the critical thing that we need to focus on is really the adaptation side of things, meaning you know, how do we prepare ourselves for these inevitable impacts that we know are coming? Like, even if we turn off 
everything to be for the next 10 years that's going to emit carbon dioxide there's still there's still a lag in the system right. um, from the carbon dioxide that's already there so we know that the warming will happen we know the consequences it will have and at the moment we're just not we're honestly just not prepared to deal with them so i think that's where our key focus needs to be um like i said you would think that these major events would be a wake-up call to people but they haven't been so we still have a lot more work to do to get people to understand that this is what the future is, is is looking like i think there's a natural human tendency to want to not hear that and not ignore it because it's like it's scary right like you can't be serious you can't be telling me that this is what the future looks like um so i think people try to as much as possible kind of like bury their head head in the sand um but one way to do it i think is to just show people like show people what they have to do and maybe not even sell it to them as, hey, here's what we're doing to adapt to climate change, but sell it to them in, in terms that they value, right? So if it's about saving money, you find a way to make it economically smart and wise, a wise decision for them as well. And you sell it to them on, on, on the basis of values that they care about. Yeah, so optimistic, yes, that's the short answer. Okay. So I wanted to touch on your opinions on certain uh, mitigation technologies. So you already mentioned the carbon capture thing. I want to know where you stand on that carbon capture and underground storage idea. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, I think the technologies are still at a point where I wouldn't make a strong judgment one way or the other. Okay. I think it's important that we allow the research to continue, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I think the more we explore it, some of the some of the things that might exist now as major concerns, you know, mm -hmm. might, there might be solutions to those things that can be that can be found. But from a philosophical perspective, um, I would be more one to 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 focus on solutions that were oriented around reducing the emissions in the first place, as opposed to trying to then, um, you know, sequester them. Because I'm a firm believer in, in the balance of, of nature. And, you know, without, even if you don't appreciate all of the, um, the chemistry and the science, I, I firmly believe that once you take something and try to force it somewhere that it wasn't naturally existing there is going to be for every action there's a reaction there's going to be some side effect of that it might not be one that we're able to first um, foresee or perceive right. or measure um, or immediately understand we might not realize it until you know like 20 years down the road but that's just my general philosophy on, on nature and how we should approach nature and I think our focus should be because the, and the technologies already exist and um, it makes sense, even now more, more, so, more, more so economic sense to move in that direction of renewable energy technologies, like the technologies there, we know at some point, we, yeah, fossil fuels are not an infinite resource. At some point, you're going to have to make the transition anyway. Why not do it in time to save the planet? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that in combination with energy efficiency, measures um as well as like land use and land change the whole matter of deforestation um and agricultural practices i think that's an area that doesn't get a whole lot of attention 
but I think I don't want to give you the wrong numbers because I don't have them in my head, but that there's a significant percentage of carbon dioxide um, emissions that just come from land degradation, like poor land use practices on a, on a global scale. And I think, like I said, that's an area that we don't put enough focus on, but I hope I've answered your question vis-a-vis the carbon sequestration. Right. So I also wanted to know about in terms of energy uses, you just said that, yes, we have to move away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. But a lot of people have the argument that renewable energy is not necessarily a viable replacement for fossil fuels because it's not as, it has the intermittent element to it. And they also have the problem with um, battery storage. So a lot of people feel as if there's no way you can have this conversation without saying we need to incorporate nuclear power into this. So how do you feel about nuclear power? Well, one, I think um, some of the assumptions that you just outlaid are not correct, right? Um, and I'm saying this on the basis of just even a thick BVI context. There's been a, a lot of work, a lot of policy work, a lot of research in the area of the feasibility of transitioning to, um, if not 100%, uh, energy economy in the BVI that is primarily based on renewable energy. And trust me, several, um, we've had several teams come in and they all get to the same conclusion that it is feasible. You're right, um, renewable energy is intermittent. Um, but for the most part, like solar, I mean, for the most part, right, we have hot sunny days and for those instances where you don't, that's where the battery storage comes in. Um, yes, there's an upfront cost to it, but it's not an insurmountable cost, right? Um, I suppose what they're talking about is the, I'm not sure why, the, why the, the suggestion that nuclear power needs to come in, that's not something. Well, not, not really for here in the BVI or in the Caribbean, but oh. on the world stage, because the um, demand for energy is really just increasing as the years go by, despite uh, mm. that it should. You're talking in a global context. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I don't think that we will achieve a world in which we have immediately, right, 100% renewable energy, nor do I think it's necessary to solve the problem, right? That's not, that's not the, I mean, they've calculated the reductions that we need to have. And like I said, not all of those reductions have to come in the form of um, a reduction in, in carbon dioxide by way of emissions from factories and electricity plants and people's homes, right? There are other things that contribute to those emissions. And I mentioned the land use change as, as examples. So I don't think that getting to 100% renewable energy is necessarily the goal. I think getting to some reasonable mix in the energy system is what is, is necessary to have a higher degree of penetration of, um, of renewable energy. And from my knowledge, um, when we look at all of the major countries that need to um, achieve those targets, the mix might look different within the different countries, of course, because you know in some countries they might have more wind energy than solar or vice versa, they might have um, wave energy or geothermal resources or hydropower or what have you right the range of renewable energies out there but i think um i think within each country there is a, 
a pathway that would allow countries to achieve the, the targets that are necessary for us to, to head off the climate change crisis without having to depend on nuclear energy, which I don't think should be. I mean, there's so many, um, I mean, we saw it in Japan, it play out in Japan, right? There's so many risks associated with nuclear energy that I just, I don't think it's worth the risk when it, I, I don't think it's necessary to, to get us to the target that we need to get to. Um, and I think the, the, the fact that you have not seen the transitions that you need to see are more, more so as a result of um, the lack of the political will to do it and, and the, the influence of the powers that be, the economic powers that be, industry, et cetera, as opposed to it being a technological hurdle. Right. I think there's wide agreement that we have the technologies that we need as a global society to, to, to address the problem. I'm not saying to get to 100% renewable, but to achieve a level of, of reduction in emissions that is necessary for us to avert a crisis. So that would be my, that's my, that's my view on it. Okay, so now these are like the last three questions. What has been the greatest local environmental travesty you've witnessed in your lifetime and what do you think we should do to ensure it doesn't happen again? Hmm. I think Beach Island Beach comes to mind. It's, okay. it's just at a level now where one would look at it and say like, it's, it's you know, in dire straits in that it's gotten into like the worst possible outcome, but it's certainly on that tra trajectory. And I would say it's a travesty because it was such a pristine, pure beach for such a long time. Yeah. And the intent, okay, so the intent was for actually for Beef Island Beach to be a national park, right? And now within the span of just one year, it's gone from being, well, I probably should say two years, it's gone from being pristine, untouched, like this beach that you could just count on to go there and have a quiet, totally natural experience to now being littered like literally or like uh, just a row of tents like a tent city along the beach noise you can't go at any time of the day without it being just i don't know like five or six sound systems clashing at once so the environment has totally changed right and i think it's a travesty because i'll tell you why that's a situation that should have never ever happened it's it's a situation where it's crown property i feel like Government had every opportunity in this situation to manage the problem and it failed to manage the problem, right? In fact, I would say to you that failures in government allowed and maybe in some ways encouraged the problem to happen. And I'm speaking even at the political level, right? Um, so for me, that's a travesty because it's, it's not a situation where you have an oil spill, right? Which is an accident and it results in a mangrove area being destroyed. It's not a situation where you might have um, a private property holder who has done something on their private land that it might have been difficult to control because it was within private property. And, okay. you know, this is a situation where government had every opportunity and had all of the control and power and resources to manage a situation and fail to manage it. And I say that being a government officer and just being really honest about the situation. So I think at, from that perspective, it's a travesty, right? 
that we just had a had like a golden egg in hand and we almost like squeezed the egg and and cracked it right and it's not it's not at a point now where some, where nothing can be done about it but i don't see the level of action happening quickly enough i just see things continuing to head along the same trajectory um i would also say that i think a lot about King Garden Bay, right? And you might be surprised to know, I was surprised to, to learn that, was it in the 80s? In the 1980s, King Garden Bay was proposed to be a national park because it was so pristine at the time, right? And look at it today. And I, I'm, so I project, right? And it wouldn't even take 30 years. I project that so two, up to two years ago, Bifalon Beach was slated to become a national park. And I feel like, you know, in a span of maybe give it two years, Bifalon Beach, if we don't intervene, will become King Garden Bay. And I think it's a tragedy because everybody agrees that King Garden Bay is not what we want to aspire towards. And we've seen it play out. We saw it go along this trajectory. We, we, we've studied the the heck out of King Garden Bay. We know all of the things that have gone wrong, but somehow we have not learned the lesson. And we're, we're watching the same thing happen to another like critical beach. And really and truly, aside from my personal connection to that beach, that is really like the only public beach on Tortola that you can really, it's accessible and accessible yeah. like year round, right? Where it's not rough. Um, it, it kind of is like the public beach yeah and so i think to lose that you're really losing something really special and important um and it, it's a tragedy because i feel like it, it, we shouldn't even even if we want to develop that beach commercially it shouldn't be a situation where we're choosing again between having a beach where it's just dominated by commercial life and People can't come there and expect to have a family picnic in some measure of like peace and quiet, right? Or you're swimming on, in the sea and you look up and you're like greeted by a row of tents. Like it could be done in a totally different way where I could go to the beach and be happy. I could look up and like see a tree of a, a line of vegetation. I could, you know, enjoy some degree of, of quiet at the beach. Um, and yet the guy could have his restaurant at the beach, right? And, and make his, his living. Um, the guy could have some beach chairs in a certain section of the beach. They could be put out on demand. They're, they're things that could easily be done, but they're just not happening. And I think it's for lack of um, the conversation that needs to happen between people having very different interests, that conversation is just not happening. And sadly, I think one of the one of our one of the things in our culture that cripples us, and I see it a lot, is that I know that there are a lot of other people that are upset about Bifalon Beach in the same way that I am upset about it. But we 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 are never willing to speak about problems in a forum or in a setting that can actually make a day, an impact. We like complain about it to our friend or to a family member, but we'll never like take a public stance on it because we're afraid to be, we're afraid to be like, you know, called out or for people to, um, to basically backlash, right? right? And well, who she thinks she is, she thinks she owns Bifalon Beach, da 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 da. 
So you never find people getting together on a cause, right? And, and trying to fight a cause. And so you often end up, when you do take that stand, you end up often taking the stand alone and ultimately people feeling like, oh, it's just she that care about it. Where, where, where in reality, they're probably like, at, you know, at least a few hundred people that care about it, but they're not willing to put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of our, um, culturally, that's one of the things that, like I said, cripples us in terms of achieving better management. And it, it, it's not just in relation to the environment, it's in relation to any topic that you want to pick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So next question is there a local person or organization who's also working in the environmental field whose work you really admire and why you know the first person that comes to mind right now is Marvin oh Um, (laughs) and not just him alone I mean I I actually thought about him in the context of his hiking tours that he's recently taken up since um COVID and for me that's a really good example of those connections that I talked about happening. So many people, I think, have built connections to nature that they've never had before through his tours. So um, he probably didn't set out to accomplish that goal, but um, I think it's happening. And so I, I, I really admire the work that he's doing there. Um, on an organizational level, uh, we don't have a whole lot of Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, environmental organizations in the BVA, and I wouldn't want to single out any particular one. I would probably just say that for everyone that exists and and is trying to make an impact, I value and appreciate their work because it's not easy Mm -hmm. um, in in BVA context to run an environmental NGO. You know, it's really not easy. So I, I don't think I single out any particular organization in my mind, but I do value the work that they all do and the contributions that they all make. And I think I would say the same when it comes to to people. I don't know if I have, um, I know I, I just mentioned Marvin um, because it relates so much to that, that whole idea of making those connections, but I don't think that I um, have a particular person in mind. I mean, the the reality is that it's a small group of us. And so again, like, I just respect and appreciate and I'm thankful for every single one of those people and what they bring to the table. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So very last question. Is there anything else that you would like to impart to uh, the public or to my classmates who will be listening to this that you didn't get to touch on in the rest of the interview? I would just say to value what we have. I mean, This is my first experience living in another Caribbean island. And I really think that sometimes in the BVA, we just don't appreciate what we have. Like I go to the beach, the beach is my thing, right? I go to the beach every single Sunday without fail. And let me tell you, I miss BVA beaches. Like we have beaches on like, I mean, don't get me wrong. St. Lucia has beautiful rivers and waterfalls and stuff that we do not have. But if I had to put them on a scale, you know, BVI beaches are 10 and maybe beaches in St. Lucia are like a five, right? So like, and I don't even think people, I don't even think people realize, 
like I don't think people understand what we have. You know what I mean? Like when you know when you have something really valuable in front of you and you, you just don't know what you have until you lose it. I really don't think that we understand what we have and how special it is. And I'm afraid that we will not understand it until we lose it. And the, the thing with nature is that once you destroy it, it's really hard. You can never, you're not gonna get it, you're not gonna have it back as it was. So I would just encourage people to um, really like stop and pause and take a moment, like get out in nature and just kind of like appreciate how the amazing, like the amazingness that we have around us because ain't many places in the Caribbean have what we have. Not when it comes, certainly not when it comes to like the coastal and marine environment, ain't many places have what we have. I would just encourage people to, to treasure it, to value it. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good answer. So <laughs> that's the end of the interview. Thanks All right. Well, I hope I didn't talk you to death. Um, I, I know I talk a lot. I guess I'm just passionate. And I hope what I shared with you was useful. Um, was. Your assignment, but also useful for you yeah. as somebody who um, will hopefully in some way or some, some form kind of contribute to the, the whole um, idea of protecting the environment and achieving sustainable development. All right, so that has been the interview with Angela Burnett. And like I said earlier, this would be the last in the series of interviews that I've been doing. Thank you so much for chiming in. And I hope that you were able to enjoy these and learn something from them. Thanks.